I want to talk to you today about dealing with lack. Dealing with lack. And that's the title of the sermon. And basically, you know, my, my plan, long range, when I come back to the pulpit after uh, the week in July that I come back, we'll be resuming our study of the mysteries of the kingdom. But right now, the Lord put this on my heart, and this is a, an important word uh, at this point in time for you to hear. And of course, when I say dealing with lack, one of the things that prompted the, uh, the message was our income since the first of the year. As most of you know, we had a record end of the year. You know, we had a $32 million year, which was up from $28 million the year prior. So the end of, of 2021 was spectacular. But it's almost like somebody just closed the door on January the 1st, because since then, our income, uh, we have a, a, a total uh, amount of red ink, in other words, below the budget of $1.1 million, and we're not even halfway through the year. And if there's lack in the corporate body in terms of meeting our budgeted requirement, assuming we want to uh, maintain current levels of ministry, and we do, we certainly don't want to go backwards, uh, then it's important to take a moment and, uh, and consider the contributors to this. And there's only one contributor I can see because the numbers of people that we minister to each week here in person and online have just increased. Uh, they haven't gone the other way. So we have more people, but less giving. And, you know, the Lord said, well, just consider the economy right now. And you have your answer because there are a lot of folks that are obviously moved by what's happening in the economy. Our esteemed president has managed to take a goody, good, strong economy and in two years' time generate the highest rate of inflation we've ever had and the highest gas prices we've ever had and generated prognostications for an economic failure, uh, which a lot of people are aware of. And, you know, and it, it's something that has caused, I think, folks to revisit uh, their levels of giving. You know, we saw we're selling two airplanes now, the 650s, now that the Falcon 50 is almost ready. And uh, uh, we had buyers for both of them as of a week ago. We hadn't even put it on the market. We had had people come to us and say, you, you ever get to where you want to sell these airplanes, let us know. And both of them said, well, we've, we've changed our minds. We want to wait and see what the economy is going to do. And so this is on a lot of people's minds. And what I realize is that a church's income uh, you, you can understand this truth. God calls people to be a part of a church, and if everybody makes their supply in that body, there'll always be sufficient money to cover the cost of doing ministry. <clears throat> and so when you see <clears throat> lack occurring in a corporate setting like we do, that simply means that lack is on the minds 
of the people that make up that corporate body. So that's why I want to preach on dealing with lack. And it's not just lack that already exists, but it's circumstances that produce the fear that lack might come to you or your family in light of what's happening. And so it's appropriate to talk about the subject of dealing with lack. I want you to bear the fruit of all sufficiency in all things so you can abound to every good work because that's the will of God. And the success of my ministry when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ is going to be the fruit you've borne. And so I see a trend being generated that, <clears throat> you know, has been a battle we fought over the years past, really. You know, red ink during the middle of the year, and then at the end of the year, God always brings it in and uh, eliminates the red ink. We put a little money in our reserve, cash reserve. But this is not the way to live. It is to meet your budget during the year. Whatever comes in at the end of the year doesn't just get wasted making up red ink. It can be spent on the ministry initiatives that the Lord wants us to take. So this is something that has to change. And I've said that for a lot of years now, and it still hasn't changed. But I'm going to keep saying it because it has to change. So I want to talk to you about dealing with lack or the fear of it in your own life. And then that will take care. The church will be taken care of, you know, through the supply that you make. And I know a lot of people are making their supply. I'm not suggesting that nobody's giving, but of course the effects are obvious of the economic concerns that a lot of people have. So, we will talk about dealing with this devil of insufficiency called lack. How do you do that? Well, the first thing you've got to do, according to the Word, is deal with your thoughts. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, for a moment to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. This is a subject Jesus is de dealing with when he says in verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you should put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? This is in a response to what he said in verse 24. No man can serve two masters, He'll either hate the one, love the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, of course, uh, we understand that mammon is the God of money. And the Lord says that his primary competition for your heart isn't Buddha, isn't Muhammad, isn't, you know, any other world religion. His primary competition is with mammon which is money that has become a God to someone. And he said, you can't serve God if the God of mammon is operating in your life because he will have you do it a way that is concerned about self as opposed to giving. You'll begin to hold on 
and be concerned more than anything about managing your finances. And he says, therefore, that's how he begins this verse. Therefore, because you don't want to wind up serving the God of mammon, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, where you're going, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live, the list goes on. It has to do with personal concern. And he said, don't take any thought about that. The next few verses he uses to demonstrate how God takes care of the, the birds and the sparrows and they don't work and toil and generate an income, but God takes care of them. How he dresses the lilies of the field more splendid than Solomon in all of his grand array. And he said, you know, surely you're more important than birds in grass. So don't even be thinking this way. The Lord will take care of you. But the point that he makes in this first verse, when he says, take no thought about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Take no thought. Because that's the way lack begins. By thinking about the possibilities and the probabilities even that circumstance is happening beyond your control and you might find yourself with not enough to take care of your life. He said, don't even think that way because thoughts are how the problem begins. He says that if you think about having lack, then that's what you're going to have. He says that in the latter verses. Therefore, don't think about it. And most translations use the terminology, don't take a care. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. But he says, don't take a thought. And the reason is because fear begins in the mind. And that's what he's after dealing with. He wants you to deal with the touch of fear by not taking a thought about the negative potential that the circumstance seems to suggest may even be a probability for you. He said, don't even think about it. He says it again uh, in verse 31. He says, therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Meaning that if you take a thought, you're going to wind up talking about it. Take no thought. Take no cares, no anxiety. Don't be fearful, in other words. God hadn't given you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Fear is what the enemy uses to drive you away from the promise of God. The Word says what you fear most will come upon you. And so if you're allowing yourself to respond to the fear or anxiety about not having any money, then you have, you have allowed a force to operate in you that will bring you exactly what you don't want. Job made that point when he said, what I feared most is come upon me. You can't let fear drive your decision making or it will put you in lack it will bring upon you the very thing that you're fearful of. So God says, don't take any thoughts, meaning we don't have to take it. 
Doesn't say the thought will never come. Thoughts come to everybody. Brother Hagin used to say, birds fly over your head every day, but you don't let them build a nest in your hair. Well, it's the same with thoughts. The enemy of your soul will produce whatever thoughts seem to promote his purpose, which is to defeat the will of God for your life. Now listen to what I'm saying. I got a lot to say, so I'm going to talk fast. But fear is what the enemy uses. It's his tool. The Bible says he can't defeat you unless he can deceive you. And so he's going to work overtime to deceive you into believing the circumstance you're seeing is beyond what God can do to take care of you. And therefore, you better take care of yourself. And so he generates thought through the circumstances he produces to come against the promise of God for your life. He's not omniscient. He can't look into your mind and see what you're thinking. So everybody has demonic assignments against them to determine where your weaknesses are and where your soft places are that he can, that he can take advantage of and that he can go after. And so he will observe what's happening in your life through these assignments against you. And that's nothing to be worried about. No, we're told that we have angelic assignments by the hand of God to take care of us, to look after us, that engage in most of the warfare in the unseen realm that you're never even aware of. But this is, this is the way the enemy works. You know, the angels, and it's generally uh, agreed, you probably have more than one, even though, you know, you have a guardian angel for sure, but probably a couple of angelic assignments to your life, and you have demonic assignments from the enemy. He, they're fallen angels, and so, you know, it's the same kind of thing. And he's looking to find out what your weaknesses are because he sees what you do. You know, he's not going to tempt me with dope or drugs. That was before my day when I was a kid. Uh, it's not something I care about. So he's not going to try to tempt me with that. He will look in each person's life where your weaknesses seem to be, and that's where he's going to fashion a strategy against you. It's like Paul said, uh, messenger of Satan has produced a thorn in my flesh. The enemy noticed something about Paul's flesh, not his spirit. Noticed something about Paul's flesh that represented a weakness and stuck a thorn in there. And he said where it came from, messenger of Satan. That's the way the enemy works. So basically, the enemy's purpose is to use the tool of fear to produce his purposes because fear operates on the same principle as faith. It's what you believe. The Bible said that, you know, your life is going to be according to your faith. Faith is an investment of your belief system in the Word of God. And so essentially, fear is believing the wrong thing. Faith is believing the right thing. If you're saved, your covenant with God makes certain promises to you. You believe who you are in Christ. You believe what the Lord says about your word. And that's what comes to you when you believe. Fear's the opposite. It's the tool of the enemy to cause you to believe the worst is going to happen. But it's still based on or predicated on your believing. So it works by the same spiritual principle. That's why it's so dangerous. 
And he does this by generating circumstance that he believes you are subject to, meaning that you, you have a weakness in this area. Money management is one of the com, most common weaknesses that Christians have. And, and it, it is a fact. It is a fact. The Bible says that management of finances is the least in which you have to become faithful. Meaning until you become faithful in using your money the way God says, you're not going to be faithful to pray. You're not going to be faithful to love. You're not going to be faithful to assemble together. list goes on. Faithfulness begins with your management of money. And don't look at me this way. This is what the Bible says. This is where it begins. And so the enemy generates circumstance designed to make you think about the possibility of not having enough. And the more you think about it, the more fear grows until that fear actually attracts to you the very condition you didn't want to have happen. And so the first thing God says to us about, you know, uh, defeating this devil of uh, insufficiency, the first thing that you've got to consider is your thought life. That's what the Word says. And take no thought, say, what shall we eat, drink, or where we shall, shall we be clothed? Meaning we don't have to take it. The thoughts are being generated by the enemy of your soul. Who, the Bible says, is for the balance of this dispensation, uh, God of this world, prince of the powers of the air. In other words, he has the legal right through the end of the church age to manipulate circumstance. He's the God of this world, this secular system we live in, to generate circumstance and people that don't know that he's even, he's even using them to, you know, produce whatever it is he feels is a weak point in your life. And the more you think about it, the more thought you take about it, the more the fear comes that perhaps this really is going to be the case. You don't have enough money to pay your bills, to do what you want to do. There are really three, three levels of lack. The lowest level of lack is, you know, if you don't get your need met, it'll kill you. You need subsistence for living, staying alive, housing, food, etc., that you're not going to get. So it could take your life if you don't have enough. That's the worst uh, manifestation of lack, but it manifests as well. I mean, if, if you can't ever get beyond having just enough, you remember the teaching I did, land of not enough, just enough, and more than enough? Well, this is the same way of determining what lack looks like. Lack can be having just enough, but never anything beyond. You know, uh, and so you go below a certain level, then you, you can't buy the, a house with the number of bedrooms you need or the number of cars you need. Your quality of life that would be acceptable to you is unachievable because of that lack. Your life isn't threatened, but the quality of life you have is. And then the final level of lack uh, would be you never have more than enough. 
You never generate an excess. So therefore, you can't ever grow or increase because it takes excess to grow or increase. I mean, in the body, yeah, we need to have excess above our uh, budget for operating the church if we're going to be able to invest in additional outreach or ministry. The same is true on an individual basis. And so it begins with your thinking. You have got to stop thinking about and focusing on the negative possibilities which will become, in your mind, probabilities if you keep them before you. This isn't to say that you don't have a responsibility to plan your financial life in a responsible way uh, to keep your family's needs met. Certainly, that's what vision is about. You need to have a vision for your family and a plan for the future. So I'm not saying don't think about the future. I'm saying don't worry about it. Don't let it become fear. And that's what he means when he says take no thought. Other translations say take no cares, don't be anxious, don't worry. Uh, but it begins with the thought life. The thinking, if you're going to think the wrong way, focuses on the negative potential that you see in the circumstances that surround you, and it begins building that fear which actually will draw lack to you. So when these thoughts come, you have to devise a new pattern of response. You can't just let it happen. Everybody gets bombarded by negative thoughts. What do you do with them? Are you quick to cast down that vain imagination, like the Word says, and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Or do you toy around with it? You think, well, if this happened, you know, then we wouldn't have enough to make our house payment, and then, you know, where would we live? And ah, Man, I better tighten up the purse strings here. There you go. I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm really working on it. So basically, uh, you know, like the word says in Proverbs 11:24, there is that which scattereth abroad and yet increaseth. There is that which withholdeth more than is meat, yet it tendeth to poverty. That's what fear of the negative possibilities will do. And that is exactly what is happening in this church since the first of the year. The money's there. We had a record year last year, record end of the year. Our numbers have only increased. This is what is going down. And that's why I'm preaching this message. You can't let fear have a place in your life. Because that which you fear is what will come upon you. So cast down. When these thoughts come, cast them down, the Bible says. And you put something in there that's good. Your mind's not going to just remain blank. So you bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You start thinking about the positive. You start thinking about what it's going to look like to have the money you need to fulfill the dream in your heart. When you have the money you need to fulfill the vision at hand, start thinking about how that's going to feel. And boy, it changes your attitude completely. But this isn't easy to do, and this is the point I want to make. 
We are so attuned to thinking negatively. That's what this carnal nature and this body of flesh does. To worrying. Your flesh loves to worry. It just does. And so these opportunities are going to come with regularity. And for the first month and a half or so of doing this, it's going to be it's going to be, require a lot of diligence. You can't let anything sneak under the wire. When the wrong thought comes, you're going to have to deal with it. And you're going to have to remind each other as husband and wife, hey, you know, uh, are you thinking right? We have to encourage ourselves and keep this pattern going. And here's the good thing about it. After what, they, what do they say, 21 days, an old pattern is broken and a new one started? Well, give it a little longer. Give it a month. But basically, you can get to where you don't even think about it anymore. The negative thought comes, you put it out right now. And this is when you're on the road to the kind of prosperity you want to have. The avoidance of lack begins with taking care of your thought life. The second thing that you are to do to deal with lack, insufficiency, is to address the circumstance itself that seems to be causing it. And it doesn't matter. You might say, well, it's political. I, don't, I can't control what the pol politicians do. Well, not immediately. You can long term. Put some people in there that are believers uh, in offices of authority. And, uh, you know, pray for those that are in authority with regularity. But you know, that, that's the longer-term way of changing the circumstance that produces fear. Uh, there are other things that the Lord may have you do, uh, but there's something you can always do that kills the circumstance of lack, kills the circumstances that produce it, that are threatening to produce it. There's something you can do that kills it like that. So once you kill the circumstance that has produced the wrong thinking, you're cool. I mean, the enemy will find something else to worry you about. So it's still important that you take care of your thought life. But in the meantime, address the circumstance of lack that exists. So how do you do that? Well, if you kept reading here and um, what Jesus said, uh, we just read verse 31. We can uh, read verse 32 and 33. For after all of these things do the Gentiles or heathen or unbelievers seek. This is an important lesson I don't have time to elaborate on. But you seek things that you think the most about. Some of the, the things have to be sought naturally. Some of them have to be sought spiritually. But you're going to invest uh, your heart in your seeking based on the things that you think the most about. So you think about something long enough, you're going to, you're going to seek to rectify the shortfall yourself. And that means you've taken it out of the hands of the Lord. He can't do anything about it if you're trying. So it says, this is what the Gentiles seek. They seek to solve this lifelong riddle of how do you keep from having lack. But your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things, and the clear implication is he'll take care of them. That's what he says in Philippians. He says, 
My God shall meet all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's what he wants to do. And he says to get there in verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, things that you want, things that you need. What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live, what you're going to drink. You know, he's going to take care of these things for you. If you are a seeker first of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, this means two things to me. And I'm, you know, you might see more, but uh, when we talk about righteousness, that word is defined two ways. It's right standing with God and right behavior. So depending on the verse you're reading, it could mean either of those. Well, a believer has right standing with God, period. When you're born again, you become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, since he's already talking to believers here, they already have right standing with God. So it would be the other aspect of righteousness, which is right doing. Right doing. And then, of course, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness would mean that you make the effort to live by the standard of God's word, by the standard of the Judeo-Christian ethic, by the principle of God's word. That should be what you seek first to do as opposed to dealing with any, uh, you know, any lack in any area of your life directly. Simply do what God tells you to do. Live by the standard of his word. And if you need more direction... Then when it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, you need to remember that Mark chapter 4 verse 26 says this, so is the kingdom of God. So is the kingdom of God. He's going to tell us what seeking first the kingdom of God means. So is the kingdom of God as though a man should sow seed. It springs and grows up and he knows not how. Jesus said in verse 13 of this same chapter, he said, you know, after he had told the disciples, it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But he went on to say to somebody that it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But if you don't know this parable, if you don't know the parable of sowing and reaping, if you don't understand that parable, you're not going to understand any parable. The whole kingdom of God will be a mystery to you that you never quite figure out unless you realize that the whole kingdom operates on the basis of sowing and reaping. And God says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, he said, don't be deceived. Remember, the devil can't defeat you if he can't deceive you. He said, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. What a man sows, that's what he'll reap. The Phillips translation says, a man's harvest in life depends entirely on what he sows. So if you want to kill the circumstance of lack, then you sow. And we see the example of sowing in the midst of lack. In Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 3, we see God telling Isaac, 
You stay in this land. You sojourn here. That means this is where you work. This is where you do your thing. This is where I've called you to be. You stay in this land. Even though there's a famine in it, you stay here. You don't run off to Egypt. You don't run off anywhere else. You stay in this land. Amen. And people tend just to do just that. When lack comes, over the years past, we had that recession in 08. A lot of people left the church, not just ours, but the church in general. Because they got disillusioned, man. You know, some folks had business challenges, ultimately went out, others lost jobs, and, you know, lack was manifest. And they left the land that God had called them to. Every believer has a land of promise. Every believer has a land of promise that flows with milk and honey. Every believer. There's something I hadn't seen, ear hadn't heard, neither has entered the heart of man, that God has prepared for them that love him. And it isn't lack. There is this land of promise for you. There is this will of God for you. It incorporates where he puts you in the body of Christ. Don't be running away. Don't be leaving the Lord. Don't be, I mean, there's another way of saying it. If you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, what? Sowing. Because that's how the entire kingdom of God operates and as we see when, in, with the example of Isaac, God told him to sojourn in the land. And in verse 12 and 13, we're told that even though there was a famine, that means extreme lack, not just a little bit of lack, extreme lack. But Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him to the point, it goes on to say in the next verse, that even the Philistines envied him. God is saying, if you will sow, even in the face of extreme lack, it produces the highest level of return. So much so that the world around you will notice what's going on in your life and want to know, man, the, the economy's gone to, you know, where in a handbasket. How are they prospering? How are they doing so well? Even the world will notice that God has taken care of you. Amen. So when famine comes, extreme lack actually shows up. You still sow. Hallelujah. And in so doing, you defeat the very circumstance of lack itself because, I mean, he just said he got a hundredfold on that harvest. And God's no respecter of persons. You know, that's why he says that he won't be mocked. It would be a mockery to who he is because the truth of God is his immutability. He never changes. This is the way he functioned in the old covenant. It's the way he'll function in your life. In the new covenant, he says he wants you to be all sufficient in all things so you can abound to every good work. Not sit there and shiver about maybe you're going to have lack, so you better hold things a little more tightly. You're going to die. 
And I don't mean that literally. Death takes a lot of forms, but whatever it is you're holding on to, you know, um, it's going to go away. That's what lack does when you call it to yourself. And so it's an imperative that you begin sowing in a time of famine. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And you know, when I'm, I'm praying about what to do for this service, you know, I thought for a while I might preach on, uh, you know, commitment, increase of the body, that kind of thing, since I just finished a new members class, and the Lord was pretty specific. He said, you have to preach on the biggest, the, the greatest areas of need that I show you in the church. And right now, uh, you have all the evidence you need that people are shying away from sowing and giving because of their concerns about not having enough. The best hedge against an economic bust is the seed you put in the ground. This has been true for me always. When we saw that this year was not starting out real well, I did a leadership conference uh, in Louisiana, and, and uh, you know, it was a week-long conference, and I sowed 100 grand. And, you know, it was a hard 100 grand to sow. But you sow when things need to change, when you need to get beyond the lack that's trying to manifest in your life. You sow in the land, in the place you are where there is famine or famine is threatened. We sowed another big one uh, in April, and, you know, not easy to do. But the Word is the Word. And so I would encourage you to approach this matter in a similar fashion. Because you can deal with the fear factor, which is what attracts lack to you, by controlling your thought life. But you fix the negative circumstance of lack by sowing. And if this is the way you're thinking, then everything will be cool, and uh, man, you're going to be just like Isaac. God won't be mocked. Hundredfold return. That's a big return. Anybody ever gotten a hundredfold return? Yes. I'm sure there, there are those that have. The magnitude of your return often depends on you know, the magnitude of your sowing. Sow sparingly, reap, reap sparingly. Sow bountifully, reap bountifully. I believe the more liberal, not in your politics, but in your giving, you are, uh, pardon me, I love the liberals. I think God loves liberals. I'm not sure. I haven't really uh, delved into that topic <laughs> I'm teasing, okay? I know I, I probably got all kinds of different political viewpoints in here. Uh, only thing I'm interested in is living by the Word of God. And uh, so that's, that's what I would encourage you to do. There's one more point as we close this up uh, that I want to make regarding uh, the way you approach life. Verse 34 in Matthew 6 says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought 
for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And again, other translations say, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't take a care about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Your primary focus needs to be today. Has God given you enough to eat today? Praise the Lord. Has God given you a good place to live today? Praise the Lord. Has God taken care of your children no matter what they went through? Praise the Lord. Amen. So you deal with today. You do the best you can do today. You plan for tomorrow. That's what vision is all about. But you never worry about it. And if you can keep from worrying about tomorrow, you eliminate 90% of the source of fear. Has to do with tomorrow. Most of the time, people are sweating what might happen, you know, in a month from now or next year, if this doesn't change, if that doesn't change, or, you know, just don't worry about tomorrow. God said he'll take care of your tomorrows. Do you believe the word? That's what the word says. So don't take care, don't worry about tomorrow, just deal with today. And today, you get your thinking right so fear doesn't get a foothold in your life and you keep sowing to break the back, to break the back of insufficiency and lack, which you can do.